Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. California closing, the U.S. state reimposing restrictions as COVID cases surge. Banking on buffers, U.S. bank giants stockpiling cash and warning about uncertainty. Wave away, Huawei, the U.K. government U-turns on using the Chinese firm's 5G tech and... TikTok star forcing Disney's Bob Iger to marvel. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. And welcome once again to all our first movers around the globe. Great to be with you on this July 14th. It's Bastille Day in France, Banks Day as I mentioned there, here in the United States. And it's a COVID crunch. Three of the biggest U.S. financials reporting a massive Q2 profit drop of more than 50%. J.P. Morgan says provisions for credit losses totaled $10.5 billion in the quarter. That's money set aside. The big unknown, of course, is just how much of this cash the banks will actually have to use, given the ongoing challenges for consumers and businesses. We are talking billions and billions of dollars. Wells Fargo, meanwhile, reporting a $2.4 billion loss, and they cut their dividend for the first time in over a decade. More analysis on the banks coming right up. Futures, meanwhile, are pretty muted this morning after the Dow gave back a 2% gain yesterday and volatility spiked once again. A different story. Meanwhile, in Asia, with Hong Kong leading the region lower after announcing tightening social distancing measures to combat fresh COVID cases there. Geopolitical tensions also weighing with China readying sanctions against Lockheed Martin for their arms sales to Taiwan. Meanwhile, take a look at South Korea doubling their stimulus plans to more than $133 billion dollars. And potential green shoots, more green shoots from China. Exports and imports rose unexpectedly last month. The import data suggesting that domestic demand for overseas goods is holding up. But I have to say the weakness in global trade overall dealing a harsh blow to export-driven Singapore, which saw its economy collapse more than 40% in the second quarter compared to the first That country now officially in deep recession. Singapore, a stark reminder to the entire world that COVID is a global problem and the path of the virus will ultimately determine the speed of our global recovery. Let's get to the drivers and that global fight against coronavirus. Just in the past four days, India has recorded 100,000 new cases. Nearly 24,000 people have now died there since the pandemic began. Meanwhile, the Philippine city of Navotas is going into a two-week lockdown following a sharp rise in cases. Residents will each have just one day allocated to them per week to go shopping. 
And Disneyland in Hong Kong, which reopened last month, is closing down again. 52 new infections were reported in the city on Monday. A different story, meanwhile, in Florida, where Disney World Resort is still undergoing a phased reopening. In other parts of the United States, the focus is now, however, reclosing, as Stephanie Elam reports. This morning, Los Angeles on high alert and on the verge of a complete shutdown. We have never had as many people infected or infectious. We have never had as many recorded positive cases each day. And we've never had as many people in the hospital. Los Angeles County reported nearly 2,600 new coronavirus cases Monday, as California added more than 8,300 new infections the same day. Governor Gavin Newsom taking action, closing indoor businesses like dine-in restaurants, bars, movie theaters, museums and zoos statewide. We were able to suppress the spread of this virus. We were able to knock down uh, the growth of this in the beginning. Uh, We're going to do that again. And in 30 of the hardest hit counties, venues like gyms, places of worship, indoor malls, barbershops and hair salons are no longer open. It's the most heart-wrenching because this is our livelihood. And so many hairdressers, they live paycheck to paycheck. For California small business owners, closing again will be tough. But many, like Tyler Emery, who owns a gym in Burbank, say it's necessary to follow the rules. We can adapt, we can improvise, we can come together. um, And ultimately, that's the only option we all have. Newsom's move after Los Angeles and San Diego school districts announced classes will be held online this fall. Meantime, in Florida, schools are still scheduled to open next month, with the Sunshine State announcing over 12,600 new cases Monday, its second highest daily total. Governor Ron DeSantis says parents should decide whether their children go back to the classroom. I'm not going to dictate, you know, how everything goes. A lot of school districts around the state that are going to just go open up and that's going to be it because they haven't faced, uh, you know, a similar epidemic that you've seen in places like Miami-Dade County. In Texas, Houston's mayor proposing a two-week shutdown. I think it's important to reset. We have to slow down this virus. The only way we can reverse course is that we have to separate And then we have to continue to put on our masks, engage in the social distancing. And with 37 states seeing new cases rise over the past week, some local leaders fear this is just the beginning of another dangerous spike. In Georgia, I I hate to say it, but it looks like we're going to be even worse than we were in the spring if this transmission continues at this rate. Stephanie Elam reporting there. The COVID challenge meaning a significant second quarter earnings decline for banking giants Citigroup, J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo. However, J.P. Morgan and Citigroup were saved by the strength of their trading operations. J.P. Morgan shares, as you can see, are up pre-market City and Wells Fargo shares are lower. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, we knew it was going to be ugly. Let's just hone in on J.P. Morgan I mean, their earnings, their profits for the second quarter virtually halving billions of dollars here set aside as well for potential losses going forward. 
Yeah, and that, that money set aside, the three biggest banks altogether set aside about $28 billion. So I think that shows you what they're expecting in terms of loan losses and trouble from the pandemic on, on companies and consumers uh, going former, forward. Uh, and the CEO, uh, Jamie Dimon, saying, you know, he was cautious, really, uh, about the future here and talked about his fortress balance sheet being a port in the storm. So he's trying to project some confidence that they are setting aside enough money and that they are going to hunker down here for whatever comes ahead. But noting that that caution ahead, Julia. Yeah, absolutely. Fortress balance sheet. This is what you need in these kind of uh, these kind of times and this kind of environment. Right. Wells Fargo. We knew it was going to be challenged. They were going to come under pressure, and they've cut the dividend as a result. Yeah, up to ten cents a share. Look, and it was worse than Wall Street. We knew it was going to be bad, and it was far worse than uh, than, than Wall Street had expected. And its CEO, you know, disappointed by the performance of Wells Fargo. I think you, when you look at the pre-market share prices, you can see the reaction on Wall Street—a five percent decline in pre-market trade. We'll see what happens here um, during the normal trading session, of course. But I mean, banks really are the leaders here of this earnings season, and this is the first coronavirus quarter. And banks, what how we're seeing banks fare here is telling us, I think, how we. Uh, uh, how, how the, the economy writ large in the financial system is, has, has been faring in the near term. I want to hear more uh, you know, guidance from these CEOs about what they're expecting in the future, though, because this is certainly doesn't look like the V-shaped recovery that so many had wanted, especially um, from what you're hearing from other industries like the airlines, you know, that you've seen the virus resurgence in the U.S., and that has sort of uh, tamped down any, any optimism of, of a recovery right away for some of those airlines, too. So uh, this is going to be, I think, a, a turbulent, turbulent earnings, uh, earnings season, no question. I couldn't agree more with you on the share prices. The banks for me reflect the real economy. Take yeah. the stock markets in aggregate and you can be really confused. And we make this Wall Street, Main Street comparison right. all the time. The banks reflect the pain. There is a lot of pain in these share prices. They're down, what, 30, 40 yeah. percent year to date. Yeah, far worse than the S and P five hundred. You know, I think the KRB banking interest, the KRW banking interest is down something like, yeah, much worse than the the S and P five hundred. I mean, the S and P and the Dow, by the way, yesterday were actually positive on the year for a moment, and I think that is just a remarkable place uh, to be, right? Positive on the year. For, for a moment, uh, probably reflecting all of that stimulus that we've been seeing coming into the uh, into the economy. But I think the resurgence of the virus and what we're going to be hearing from these companies, these CEOs in this earnings season, uh, you know, it's going to it's going to be I, I expect more volatility here. No question. Yeah. A true reflection of the um, the sheer uncertainty at this stage. Yeah. Christine, great to have you with us. Christine Roman's Bye. there. Now, a major blow to China tech giant Huawei. The British government is reversing policy. They'll now ban Huawei's equipment from the country's 5G network. Telecom operators in the UK must remove Huawei's hardware by 2027. Harris Gold has all the details for us. Potentially angering China here, pleasing the United States. So the UK caught in the middle. But Huawei does have seven years and the companies that are operating with them to uh, to get out and remove these relationships. How badly is that going to STEMI, the UK's uh, efforts as far as 5G is concerned? Well, Julia, it will definitely affect the 5G efforts and it will delay them. And that's something that the Digital and Culture Secretary freely admitted when he was making this announcement earlier today, saying that it will cause probably around a two to three potentially year delay of the 5G rollout and cost billions more pounds for the United Kingdom. But this is a dramatic U-turn reversal from what we saw in January, where Huawei was given a limited role in building out 5G. But this change today comes after not only increasing pressure from the Trump administration, but also from Boris Johnson's own 
conservative party. Uh, and But the real trigger here, though, was this uh, U.S. Department of Commerce decision in May to issue new, new sanctions against Huawei. And what the new, this caused a new U.K. security review. And the culture secretary said today that the security review found that they, because of these new sanctions, they could no longer pretty much trust that Huawei would be able to get the supplies needed in order to help them build this 5G network. And as a result, we now have this ban. No uh, telecoms operators allowed to, to buy new Huawei equipment after January, and they must remove all existing Huawei equipment from their 5G network by 2027. Now, existing Huawei equipment and things like 4G, those can remain. It's the 5G networks that will be directly affected. Uh, this is a huge win for the Trump administration. They had been wanting this. They had even said that the uh, military and security cooperation between the UK and the US could be affected by this decision. So clearly a win for them. Obviously, it's a huge loss for Huawei, who has been in the United Kingdom for 20 years. They said in a statement, it's disappointing. They said that this decision is about US trade policy and not security. They said it threatens to move Britain into the digital slow lane. And as we noted, it is a loss for consumers because it will delay the rollout of the super fast 5G network here in the United Kingdom by at least a year, probably two to three years. Yeah, absolutely. An uncomfortable timing when you're caught in the middle of the world's largest nation and the world's second largest nation during Brexit negotiations. And you need these trade partners desperately. But uh, Hey, that's part and parcel of the challenges here. Haddis Gold, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Now, the wild ride for Tesla investors keeps getting wilder. The stock jumping 16% on Monday to an all-time high, only to sink back again, closing down at 3%. It's up over 5% in pre-market trading. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Hold on to your car seat, Claire Sebastian. One way to describe this stock for me now, irrational exuberance. It's a parabolic move. Yeah, $300 swing in the, in the space of one day, Julia, all in a day's work for, for Tesla, given the, the crazy ride that we've seen uh, from this stock recently up again. You know, some might have said that that swing yesterday might have heralded sort of a turnaround, some profit taking. We've seen even some of the most ardent Tesla bulls sort of coming out there and saying, you know, this might be time to actually take some money off the table, but up again pre-market. We think that's partly because of a report that Tesla, uh, a Tesla exec in China has been meeting with officials from another region, Chongqing, in the southwest of the country could signal some expansion there. China, obviously, a critical market. Uh, but overall, this stock, I mean, it's, it's up some 314% since its March lows. Its value has uh, gone up six times over the space uh, of 12 months. There are reasons behind that. It has now been profitable uh, for three straight quarters. The latest sales numbers vastly outperformed uh, estimates that, uh, some say, puts them on course for a fourth straight uh, profitable quarter that could uh, put them in line to, to be included in the S&P 500, which could give the stock uh, another boost. They've got a battery day coming up. There's uh, good sales in China. So all in all, there's a lot uh, that, that, that sort of, you know, the wind put the wind in Tesla's sails. Uh, but they are facing the same challenges that, that all companies out there are facing, Julia, and that's the macro headwinds. And I think that's one of the reasons why you saw the stock turn around yesterday, the same as everyone. The fact that California is now reimposing new measures and that virus cases right. in parts of the US are rising. And of course, uh, Tesla having the infamous battle or Elon Musk having the infamous battle with the uh, local authorities there to reopen production. And of course, uh, President Trump weighing in as well to try and allow it. But I think your critical point here, and this is very key, is whether or not they do see inclusion in the S&P 500, because you've got all sorts of uh, index, people that track the index, then having to buy Tesla stock. And it will depend on sort of what proportion it takes of that index, that it continues to be um, sort of chased higher and higher. That move looks suspect to me, I have to say. 
Well, I think a lot is resting, Julia, on what happens next week with earnings. If that is a profit, then you know I think the stock could have another uh, stretch higher than even than what we've seen. That there was a price target raise uh, just yesterday from Piper Sandler up to two thousand three hundred and twenty-two dollars. That's a huge uh, premium on what we're seeing now. Even Elon Musk on Twitter said "Wow" when he saw that. Uh, so I think that is really the next sort of milestone for this stock. If that is a profit, that's huge. Then we have Battery Day in September, where they're supposed to be showcasing a million mile battery. So they've got a lot of big potential news coming up. And I think while we wait for that, there could be some volatility, some increased volatility. Uh, and then we could see you know, yes. big reactions to those milestones. July 22nd, all important uh, release of those numbers there. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, coming up here on First Move, building a bridge to a vaccine, how searching human cells can reveal our most potent antibodies. And later in the show, summing up 2020, this TikTok star shows us how to make friends and influence people like the chairman of Disney. Stay with us, we're back after this. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. futures are set to uh, lose a bit of ground at the open. Today, we've had earnings from major U.S. banks showing the extent of the economic damage suffered during the second quarter, suggesting this Q2 earnings season will most definitely be a challenging one as expected. J.P. Morgan Chase and Citigroup's results would have appeared far worse without strong results from their trading desks. We've got more analysis coming up on the show. But for now, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon striking a cautious tone on the outlook for the economy today. So, too, did the CEO of Delta. He says ticket demand has now stalled as U.S. states put in place lockdown measures once again. All this only emphasising the need for effective treatments to tackle the virus, something infectious disease expert Dr. Anthony Fauci discussed this week. Given the experiences that we've had with Ebola and monoclonal antibodies, uh, I think that that's almost a sure bet is monoclonal antibodies directly against the virus to be given in a single or a couple of intravenous infusions in people early in the course of disease to prevent the necessity of their going into the hospital. Aha, and one firm working on exactly that is Absolera. Its groundbreaking technology involves screening a blood test sample taken from a recovered COVID patient, sifting through more than 5 million immune cells to identify and isolate the most potent antibody that could be used to help future victims. Joining us now is Absolera CEO, Carl Hansen. Carl, fantastic to have you with us on the show. I hope I got that right from uh, from our discussions. It's basically about harnessing the human body's best defenses to fight this. Yes, Julia, that was that was spot on. Uh, pleasure to be here today. Fantastic. Talk me through how your team have done this, because it's not just about groundbreaking technology. It's about the speed upon which you've done this, too. Well, that's right. Um, as everyone knows, this is a, a unique situation and moving quickly uh, while not leaving any stone unturned has been what this is all about. Uh, so really two things have enabled this. One is Abcelera, uh, which is a biotech company in Vancouver, has for the last almost decade been developing a next generation technology that lets us deeply scan into the depths of natural antibody responses to find the very best molecules that can be developed for therapeutics. Now, usually we do that for the top end of the drug discovery industry. 
but over the last two years working with the DOD, we had been preparing this technology for exactly this scenario, which is a pandemic response. Uh, so shortly after the first uh, American patient was identified with COVID-19, we mobilized that team and on March 1st, we're able to start screening the very first blood sample that was available. Uh, then shortly after that, made a collaboration with Eli Lilly and together with them taking the heavy lift on the manufacturing and the clinical development and ultimately the commercial development, we've been able to go from that first sample to find the very best of the millions, the very best antibody for millions of cells and bring that into clinical testing in only three months, which is by far a world record to date. Yeah, it's just mind blowing. I mean, we're talking about the best antibody that we can find, but I want you to define what that means because it's surely got to be a balance of potency in, in tackling and fighting COVID-19. But at the same time, as you point out with your, your work and your partnership with Eli Lilly, it's about what can be easily scaled up and, and manufactured. Well, that's exactly right. So. Uh, antibodies are nature's response to infection and disease. And if a patient is infected with COVID-19, the patient will not just make one antibody, but perhaps tens of thousands of different antibodies. And each of these is not made equal. Uh, so what we are looking for is to scan through all those antibodies within days and find the antibodies that can stop the virus in its tracks at very low concentration are potent, but also that have the other properties that you want for drugs, that they're safe for humans and a human derived antibody against COVID is likely to be safe. But importantly, also that those antibodies can be manufactured easily. And in this situation, a pandemic response, that is absolutely critical because we do not have the luxury of time to fix an antibody that has problems. Uh, so in, in doing that, we were able to go at record speed in large part because we searched very deeply at the beginning. Uh, and I'll just add to that that while in the early days we had one sample and we're focused on getting the best possible therapy out there, uh, we have not stopped. And working with Eli Lilly, we continue to screen additional patient samples uh, in order to bring a further generation antibody to the clinic. This is a really important point, I think, the fact that you're still searching. You're still looking to see if you can find a superior antibody. Just I think you need to give our audience a sense of how this will be used if indeed you succeed in, in, in getting this to a point where it can be given to individuals, because just an incremental tiny improvement in the antibody that you're using could have a massive increase in, in capability in terms of how many people surely you can, you can get this out to and, and help treat. That's exactly right. So, and we just heard the clip from uh, Dr. Fauci saying that antibodies are one of our best chances and the antibody being developed by Lilly and Abcelera is now the, the first therapeutic that was custom made for COVID-19 and the furthest development in the furthest developed in the clinic. Um, so that antibody is extremely potent. And in most situations, uh, that would be enough and you would just continue along your way and work on the clinical development. Uh, if this antibody is successful and we have every reason to think that it will be, it could be used for multiple different patient groups, for the very sick, for those that have recently become ill, and also for patients that are at risk of becoming ill, those uh, perhaps the elderly or immunocompromised. Uh, once you start to do the numbers and you look at how many patients may be able to benefit from this therapy, uh, in particular before uh, vaccines are, development, are, are developed, uh, you quickly realize that um, there are many, many patients, and if you can use less antibody, then the manufacturing capacity that is available can be used to help more people. And so for that reason, we continue to search deeper and we've gone through now an additional uh, 10 patients and we have many thousands of antibodies, including a handful that are even better than the one that's gone forward. And those could be brought forward as a next generation therapy to help uh, even more patients uh, respond to uh, recover from COVID-19.
And it's just to be clear, it's a one shot dose. So you simply boost the body's own antibodies that it's creating to fight the virus. And it just provides a, a bigger, more potent army to fight COVID-19 within the system. Yeah, I, I would say that it is both a, an advanced guard and also a reinforcement to the right. body's own immune response. So uh, by giving an antibody, unlike a vaccine, you don't rely on the patient to mount an antibody response. You've taken the very most uh, powerful part of one patient's antibody response, manufactured it, and delivered it to another. That should provide immediate protection and help patients that have not made their own antibodies to fight the virus. Of course, during the infection, patients will also make their own antibodies. And so coming out of an infection, uh, they should be um, reinforced uh, with their own immune response. And this is in order to bridge that gap and to help those that for some reason are not able to mount an antibody response quickly enough to recover. Yeah, and this is why I was so excited when I read about this, because it sort of bypasses all the questions that we're asking right now about potency of our own antibodies, how long they last, whether they deteriorate. It sort of bypasses that process and just boosts them, the, the work that the body's doing itself. Carl, how quickly could we see this if everything goes smoothly with the trials? How quickly could we see this actually being used in practice? And are you allowed to give me a hint on cost as well? Well, Julia, um, you know, as I, as I said before, this is moving at absolutely light speed. And normally to go from the start of a program to an approved drug would be several years. It wouldn't be unheard of for that to be more than 10 years. Uh, this program started in March. Uh, it got to the clinic in only three months and it's already advanced to phase two. So uh, if everything goes smoothly, um, we believe or are optimistic that a therapy could be available this year. Uh, and there's already been manufacturing at risk to make sure there are many doses uh, to have maximum impact in 2020. Um, in terms of pricing, um, I, I can't comment on that. Uh, Eli Lilly is driving the commercial effort. Uh, what I do know is that they're going to take uh, every step that they can to make sure that as many patients as possible have access to this drug. Yeah, I know. An incredible partnership between Eli Lilly, yourselves, and the regulators, of course, pushing this through as well. Carl, thank you for the um the optimism that I walked away with, and I hope our viewers did here too. Um, great work by your team, because I know you're working 24-7 as well. Thank you, and stay in uh, touch. Thank you very much, Julia. We're seriously we're proud of the team and the conference availability. Take care. Yeah, you're right to be. Carl Hansen, CEO of Absolera. Thank you so much for that. All right, the market open. It's next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Tuesday, as expected, a lower start. Tech stocks taking a hit in early trading. Second quarter results, of course, too, from J.P. Morgan Chase and Citigroup, showing that they're weathering the COVID-19 storm thanks to the strength of their trading desks, offsetting uh, some of the broader challenges and those reserves as well that they're stockpiling against future losses. Wells Fargo reporting a wider than expected loss of some $2.4 billion for the quarter as it set aside almost $10 billion for potential soured loans. Just giving you a look at now at how all three banks are doing in early trading. Wells Fargo taking a big hit down at more than 5.5%. And even though we're seeing losses for tech overall, Tesla shares are up in early trading after an extremely volatile day of trading yesterday and volatility pre-market too. We've got lots to discuss. Fortunately, we're now joined by John Petridis. He's Portfolio Manager at Tocqueville Asset Management. John, fantastic to see you on the show, even if it is long distance. It's been a while since we've been at the Stock Exchange. Talk me through what you're thinking with the banks here. Perhaps no surprises. Yeah, I mean, the, the banks have been one of, outside of energy financials and the banks have been the worst performing sector 
uh, of the S&P 500 year to date. So, you know, clearly, uh, as we've entered the end of Q1 and into Q2, uh, with the economy being shut down as much as it was, uh, you knew there was going to be struggle and deterioration. That's why the banks have sold off so much. But what you're seeing out of banks uh, today with their uh, results is equivalent to what many people were doing in March and April, and that was hoarding, you know, instead of hoarding toilet paper, they're hoarding cash. Uh, they're, they're stockpiling, not their pantry with pasta and tuna fish, but they're stockpiling it with reserves. And uh, the, the banks are, you know, battening down the hatches and preparing for the worst, you know, really uncertain um, as to uh, what the future holds. But you know, by and large, the regulations that we've seen post the great financial crisis of 2008 and 2009 are holding strong. Uh, we saw that with the Fed stress test back in June, the end of June. Right. And now we're seeing it today that, you know, despite the reserve build, uh, the, the banks are, are, are prepared for um, if there is another leg down in the economy and, 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 and we have to shut down parts of the economy with COVID. Yeah, what did Jamie Dimon call it? Fortress balance sheet. Incredible that you can see your earnings half and still earn $4.7 billion and have $10.5 billion worth of reserves set aside. It's so many challenges here. It's low interest rates and for the foreseeable future. So it's tough to make money from lending. Yeah. The potential credit losses coming from consumers and from businesses too, saved in terms of JP Morgan and Citi by, by the trading desks. It's a different story for Wells Fargo. Yeah, I, I think with Wells Fargo, the big issue uh, and why you're seeing a relative underperformance of Wells Fargo today versus the other banks is the cut to the dividend was significantly more than what investors and analysts have been expecting. Uh, Wells Fargo was paying 51 cents per quarter per share uh, in, in the dividend. Uh, analyst expectations were for that to be cut to around 30 cents. So, you know, a big dramatic cut. Uh, a little bit less than half, and they cut it to 10 cents per share. To me, this looks like uh, Wells Fargo is taking a big bath in terms of their their results. They're cutting their dividend uh, more than way more than expectations. They've made a lot of key hirings across many platforms in the portfolio, which increased their operating expenses because they had to pay them a big salaries. Remember, Wells Fargo prior to COVID was still trying to turn itself around mm. from all the nefarious actions that uh, prior management had taken in 2016, 17, and 18. And they have st they were in the Fed's penalty box uh, for from, from a capital standpoint uh, because of those issues. So here, it looks like uh, Wells Fargo is doing a lot of uh, things to, to really wipe out as many expenses as possible, uh, really cut the dividend in the short term. And to me, it seems like Wells Fargo is hitting the reset button uh, battening down the hatches and preparing for the future that, you know, they, they're hoping to set the floor and the bottom um, so they can now projectile from here. That, that That's yeah. kind of how I'm reading uh, Wells Fargo. But their call is around 11, 1130 today. We'll find out more. But uh, clearly that, that seems to be the case from my standpoint. Yeah, take the hits all in one go. We were just looking at the uh, share price down some 7% there very quickly because I do want to ask you about your thoughts on Tesla here. At what point are we going to look at the banks given that they're off 30, 40% year to date and go, actually, there's a lot of bad news in the price here and perhaps it's time to, to dip your toes back in? Yeah, I, I think there's, you, you highlighted a lot of, uh, of the concerns in the market just in your comments before. Interest rates are low and they're probably going to be low for the foreseeable future. We don't know the economic um, repercussions of where COVID is going to lead, right? So what does that mean for the loan portfolio? 
and the banks are dealing with new accounting issues. There's a new regulatory issue uh, called CECL, current expected credit losses, uh, which means the banks have to mark down their losses, the loans that they're making now, they have to make an educated guess on how much of those loans are going to be defaulting on in the future. So think about that. They're not making uh, they're not taking the loss uh, of previous loans. They're taking the loss of future loans. So that's impacting their book value. So you have all of those things baked in the cake and, and part of the reason of why the banks are down so much. But when you look at the, the amount of, uh, uh, of, of deposits that are on the bank's balance sheet, you look at their capital ratios are still well above where the Fed wants them to be. And, and banks are trading around or at a discount to book value. I think for the long term here, uh, if you could withstand near-term volatility, I think the long-term for the banks is quite attractive. Mm. Now, speaking of uh, volatility, short-term, never mind uh, long-term here, what are your thoughts on Tesla? Even if I didn't know what the stock was or anything about the fundamentals, if I look at the chart, the short-term chart here, um, I know which direction I think the stock's going in at some point and it's not higher. What do you right. think of this, John? <laughs> Well, I, I think what, what you're seeing in Tesla here is the market pricing in that it's game, set, match on the electric car market, electric vehicle car market. Uh, you know, you know, Ford and, and many of the other uh, big car com auto manufacturers in 2016, 17, 18, you know, were rolling out electric cars and they were talking about 2020, 2021, where, where they were going to be putting a tremendous amount of capital expenditures and cash flow towards building out their electronic car fleet. And then COVID happens. So now, instead of uh, investing for future growth, these companies are taking this cash to really stop the bleeding because they're because car sales have plummeted. So uh, which and 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 so which gives Tesla uh, added room to be to to grow as being the first mover advantage in the car market. And Tesla the other day lowered the pricing on the Model Y, uh, which again is looking to take more market share. And if they can get more people buying their electric car rather than others. They continue to increase their dominance, and, 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 and other players in the competitive market have really taken a step backward. This reminds me a lot of the smartphone market. You know, the app, at one point in time, you had Apple, Samsung, HTC, uh, Palm, BlackBerry, Nokia, Microsoft. You know, all of these companies were involved. Even Amazon tried to get into the handset market at one point in time. And basically, it's a two-horse race Apple. between Apple and Samsung. <laughs> and, you know, Apple is the higher-end, higher-ticket price. Uh, you know, uh, versus Samsung, which is a lower ticket price. And I think that's what you're, the market is pricing in on the electric car market. And, you know, to, to make a comparison, the market is uh, equating Apple to te uh, Tesla to Apple. So I have like five seconds. You'd buy at this price? Uh, I would not be buying. Well, it depends <laughs> on your time frame. I would probably not be buying Tesla. Uh, I would not be buying Tesla at this price. Okay, you were giving it the bold buy there. <laughs> okay, John, great to work. Uh, well, you know, with the, you know, at some point, valuation matters. And when your yeah, stock price is I up agree. X percent in a, in a market that's down, uh, and, and, and the market cap of Tesla equals that of Toyota, Ford, and General Motors, you know, the market is pricing in a lot of very good news, uh, and the, the hurdle rate is really high. And um, so... You know, there's better value to be had else, elsewhere than, be te than Tesla at this point. Yes, I hear you, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. I'm being shouted at now for taking too much time. John <laughs> Retreat, thank you so much for warming up to my subject. Thank you. All right, Bye. coming up on the show, a young TikTok star who became an internet sensation, catching the eye of millions 
including Disney's chairman. You won't want to miss this. Stay with us. Welcome back, and now to a TikTok star who clearly believes the force is with him. Meet Julian Bass, a 20-year-old who's been making videos for nine years using some pretty stunning special effects. In this TikTok video viewed millions of times, he transforms, as you can see, into a succession of superheroes. But it took only one tweet to put him on a far bigger stage. He wrote, if you all can retweet enough times this Dis- that Disney calls, that would be greatly appreciated. Well, Disney chairman Bob Iger responded saying, the world's gonna know your name. So what happened next? Well, let's find out. Julian joins us now. That was my poor attempt at an American accent there, Julian. Great to have you with <laughs> us. This video has now been watched almost 23 million times and I could be, uh, I could be out of date. Were you ever expecting this kind of response? I, I really had no clue that this was all going to happen. I, you know, this video was just another, another in a long line that I was just planning to make. And, um, and this has just been quite the whirlwind. And just to be clear, this is you producing this video. You're doing all the special effects, the editing. This is all your work. Yeah, it's it's all me. You know, we've been quarantined, so uh, we've had a lot of time to ourselves. So, um, yeah, I just set up my phone and, and, and I just film it, edit it, do everything. And Bob Iger got in touch. I believe the boss of Marvel Studios has also been in touch. What was that like? It's it's insane, you know, <laughs> as as a fan of these things, you know, you don't you just don't expect to ever get a phone call like that you know i watched the first iron man when i was eight years old and i'm 20 now and it's been around for basically like over half of my life and so now just to be getting all this buzz and like to maybe be a part of it it's like i don't really know how to process that (laughs) but uh it's it's definitely it's definitely unreal and you are at college studying we should be clear as well you're you're studying um theatre study, so you do have ambitions to, to be an actor uh, one day, yeah. at the very least, given your uh, technical skills here as well. Talk to me about TikTok. Right. How using this as a tool has been a great launch pad for you? Yeah, TikTok has a, has a way about it, you know, and, um, you know, people ask me, like, you know, what's the secret, how you get go viral? And I'm like, look, I, I just make engaging content. So, you know, the landscape is very different. And it's just like one of those once in a lifetime platforms that, you know, when YouTube started up, that was it. When Vine happened, that was it. And TikTok's it right now. Um, and it's just it's just one of those sensational things where, you know, I start the video holding a lightsaber. So you're going to keep watching, obviously. And that's how I just do my stuff, you know, and that's how it, it just unfolds. It's, it's amazing to hear you call it a once in a lifetime thing. I mean, I'm sure... As many of you content creators on TikTok are aware, the U.S. government sort of taking steps perhaps to restrict it here in the United States. We're already seeing companies saying to their employees, hey, we want you to delete the app. What is that going to mean for you? What do you what do you think about potentially seeing this restricted? Um, Well, lucky for me, I just got out of it. You know, like (laughs) I just transcended that a bit. So I um, I kind of lucked out there. Uh, But it just. 
it would be it would be much different because I just have I think I'm 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 getting close to about nine hundred thousand followers over on TikTok and um it's it's a great community, a great community of people who like support me, love my work and it's been so instrumental in how I how I create and how I'm continuing to create. Um and how I started to make money too. That's that's another big thing as well. Like a lot of people you know, TikTok is their profession to a, to a certain extent. So uh, it's it's just, you know, I was on the I was on calls with TikTok uh, people who work there, and you know, they're not necessarily worried that the app's going to go down. It's it's you know, um, it's neither here nor there. It's just um, you know, TikTok it's itself. Yeah, it's interesting it's, to it's, hear it's you fun. make the point that it's helped you become an entrepreneur and to make money using this tool as well and to be paid for um, for your talents. Julian, do you have an agent? Yeah. This is the big question for the moment. Um, I, as of today, I'm, I'm going to be signing with ICM. Oh, I'm gonna wow. Be, I'm going to be going with ICM. Yeah, ICM Partners. Um, and, you know, I've been, I've spoken to pretty much every agent you could think of. Um, but it's <laughs> it's been... It's been it's been one of those processes where it's just like you know you're filling it out and you like that group the best and you're gonna give them a call today. So, congratulations, Julian. The sky's the limit, and we'd like your first interview, please, when you become one of the uh, future Marvel uh, movie superheroes. You can say yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> there you go. I'm gonna hold you to that, Julian Bass. Great to have you with us, and congratulations and great work. What an awesome video. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. All right, coming up after the break, Richard Quest back where he belongs, in the skies and in an airport too. The airport is pretty sparse. All the restaurants... Pretty sparse indeed. His transatlantic experience has changed. Richard joins us next. Welcome back to First Move. Delta Airlines has posted its worst loss since 2007. The U.S. carrier losing $2.8 billion in the second quarter. Revenue was down 91 percent from a year earlier. And the airline is trimming its schedule yet again as coronavirus spreads even faster across the United States. In a moment, Richard Quest in London will join us to take apart those numbers. But first, his journey from New York's Newark Airport to Heathrow and his first flight in four months. The airport is pretty sparse. All the restaurants seem to be closed, or at least it's not immediately obvious where you can get something to eat. Everything's getting ready and perhaps will be, but it's not there yet. I have done this flight so many times and yet it does feel different. Knowing the circumstances, knowing the parlous state of the airline industry, being aware of the number of flight attendants and crew that, that are about to lose their job. Something that has been so normal for me, so special, and now very different. If you look at a flight as being the plane took off, the engines kept going and the pilot knew the way, then it was pretty much like any other flight. But it was far from that. I got quite emotional. For somebody who travels so much like me, it really was quite an experience. The first flight after four months and everything is totally different. 
quarantined Richard, of course, joins us now from his lounge in London. Richard, always great to have you on the show. I could hear the emotion in your voice there. It's very different. Yes, and I think what surprised the two things that I took away from it. Firstly, the flight crew, the flight attendants. They were absolutely wonderful in very difficult circumstances and many of them, most of them, facing possibly the loss of their job. And they still went through exactly what they were supposed to do, were charming, friendly and and there was excellent service. The second thing, you, you take off from New York, there's the pandemic. You fly over Greenland, the pandemic. You fly over Ireland, the pandemic. You come in and you see London and England, southern England, the pandemic. I started to really feel the global nature of this pandemic. It doesn't matter where you fly. When you get off the plane, it will be there. Coronavirus, the pandemic. How many people were on the flight, Richard? Just give us a sense. And what were people saying? Were they nervous to be on that flight? Because there will be people watching this going, should I and can I get on a flight right now? There were about, I don't know, 10 of us, 12 of us in business class. Premium economy had one or two, and there may have been 20 or so sparsely dotted out, 30 over over economy. Um, Yes, I'm I'm sure people are nervous. And, you know, I can recount all the same facts. The HWA filters, the hospital filters, the fact that they use electrostatic cleaning, that everything's fresh. The meal tray, for example, nothing on the meal tray had been touched by anybody else. The food was still in, uh, was still in foil. The, uh, the, the, the biscuits or the dessert, that was all still sealed and wrapped in plastic. So they've accommodated and they've done a really good job that they've done this. And to the airline's credit, and I know this isn't going to be popular because people sort of think bad, big, bad airlines, but to the airline's credit, Delta, United, American, BA, all of them, they're still running flights for people like you and me and everybody who wants to fly and losing money in doing so. So when you put it in that context, you realise this is a unique industry and one perhaps, Julia, that does deserve support because without it, this, this backbone of communication, physical communication, would have just disappeared. A backbone of the global economy. Let's face it. Richard, thank you yep. so much for sharing your views and making the trip for us. And uh, stay safe thank you. there in quarantine. Richard Quest there. Thank you. All right, that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'll be back tomorrow. Stay safe in the meantime. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.